This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Wow. All right, so we're going to jump right to and go back to the beginning. Uh, for you, Ted. Just uh... <laughs> So what was, uh, when you first read Alison Schroeder's draft and the book proposal, uh, what drew you to the story of these three amazing women? Uh, what's not the? I mean, I, you know, it's one of those kind of brainless situations. Um, the fact that I, I think what, what hit me the most was the fact that I didn't know a thing about it, and I was shocked by that, uh, and and blown away by it. And you know, I have two daughters, and even even today, my daughters are told, "Don't worry about the math. That's for that's for boys." Um, and they're, they're extreme feminists now. So, uh, Anyway, you know, I just, just deeply moved by the subject matter and that these women have been hidden in history for so long. Did you know anything about them beforehand? No, not a thing. So, Elizabeth, what about you? What, was, what, what made you say... Because this is a, theor- a movie about theoretic geometry. Not exactly the most visually, you know, you jump to the page. What made you say, I have to make this movie? Well, I think Ted said it the best um, in several conversations when he said, don't make a movie about women, don't make a movie about black women, don't make a movie about math. So we sort of hit all three, you know, in one shot. Um, no, for me, uh, first of all, we had been trying to work with Ted for a long time. And uh, we're just pushing him and pushing him about, you know, what do you want to do next, what do you want to do next? And he finally called my colleague and Gaucho graduate of UCSB, Marissa Paiva, um, and said, this is the movie I want to do next. And I think my reaction was just so visceral to reading the script, I cried when I put it down. And I thought, you know, this story has so much emotion and so much life and humanity to it. And if I can be part of bringing this to the world with Ted's vision, then count me in. And so it was a pretty, pretty quick decision. Now, Kevin, when you first read the, uh, the script... I knew you were coming to me. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you first read the script, I mean, your character is composite yeah. of a few different men. So what was your initial reaction well, and what do you want? I, I'll, I'll get to that, but first there's a lot of things washing over me. One, I, when I get back into academia, I, my pitch start to sweat. <laughs> and... Um, and when we start talking about geometry, that's bad enough. But when you start talking about theoretical geometry, it just starts to mount. But one thing I think, I know we're going to progress, and it's so nice that everybody's here. But one thing that's worth saying, because I know there's professors here and there's students here, and, and you know, there's a lot about how do you guide your life, right? How do, what am I going to do, or how do I even negotiate my life? Well, you know, uh, we have to do that all the time ourselves, even as we go through our careers, and I think it bears um, um, mentioning, um, I think it would be remiss not to say this, you know, um, Ted had a choice. He had a big fat movie called Spider-Man they wanted him to do, and that's a big, that's a big check. That's a big career move in the world if you want to just, you know, all of a sudden be considered, and these guys are able to make $150, $200 million films, and we're not immune from wanting that, that big check, that big notoriety. But Ted has a grasp enough of what his life's about that when he read this, it trumped that, that offer. And so I think that's worth uh, noting, and I think it's worth 
understanding that people have to do that at all points in their career, try to make up in their mind what's right for them. And somehow the universe starts to take care of itself. And I think that the idea that you have a number one movie that was made for about 10 cents um, uh, speaks really well for following your, your vision, which is a little bit of what university is about, right? Just finding the vision, not going to intramurals all the time, which is what I do. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> Uh, I'll try to be brief with this. What drew me to this movie, I wasn't drawn to the movie. I liked the movie, but my character was not the character I think that we were able to finally put up on the screen. There was a character called Al Harrison, but I, at first blush, Ted was on his way down to make the movie and came to me and I said, look, I really think that this is a right movie for you to be making. It seems really beautiful, but the part for me doesn't make much sense. Uh, It feels a little schizophrenic. It feels a little bit... Off And it's not my M.O. to put my uh, authorship on things. That's not really what I do. I worked on about 12 movies where we didn't change a word. But I had a problem with this one, and Ted was quiet. He said, you know, and when I said schizophrenic, it got real quiet. Because <laughs> when you're a writer, you, there's feelings. And when somebody's going to come out and say something as bold as that. But ultimately, Ted said, listen... I have had more problems with this particular character. One reason was I, I could never get the rights to him. And so he's made up of three different men. And there was an honesty on the phone. And he said, I haven't been able to really apply myself because it's the woman's story. And I said, well, look, if we can, if we can somehow find out how, a way to have it support the movie, not make the part bigger, but support the movie, you know, can you do that? Ted said he could. That's not the end of life, because a lot of people will tell you in life what they'll do, and then they can't do it for some reason, because I've directed a film, and they're 14-hour days, and the last thing you want to do is get on a phone and talk to me about what's not working. Not because maybe you don't want to, but because you're tired. But Ted said he'd do it, and he did, and I'm forever grateful to be in your movie, Ted. Thank you. Thank you. So... I'm not that nice of a person. I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> yes, you are. So I read, I read the book. It was based on... It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing book, but the first 100 pages or so of the book is 40 years in the past. How did you go about deciding what gets cut of their stories, what you had to condense, and you know, what did you really wish you could have put in there that you just Well, the good fit? news is, and the, and the bad news, the good news is we didn't have the book. We had a 55-page book proposal. So we scripted the movie based on the outline. And she, Margot Lee generally didn't finish that book until we started shooting in March. And then like mid-April, she, we're like almost done with the shoot. And she says, I finished the book. And I go, thanks. <laughs> but she sent me the book anyway. And I said, Margot, I'm not reading the book because then I'll figure out all the things I did wrong. So we just kind of, you know, I just did my own, we did, we did a lot of, Research. I, just, I went and visited Katherine Johnson twice. She's 97, and I interviewed her twice. And we dug in with the NASA historians, who were fantastic, and uh, a math specialist. And we just did our own research on all the women and just pieced together that research with what Margot had already done and came up with the, with the, the script. Now, Elizabeth, you had a, uh, we were talking backstage. You had a 43-day uh, 43 shoot. 
For you, how is it like you're balancing? We know we have a tight shoot. We know we have a low budget, but I want to make sure everything stays in, you know, from the script. Well, I think Ted assembled a crew that was brilliant, and I can honestly say that everyone working on this film came with their heart in their hands and gave all to him. And, uh, and the cast, everybody. I mean, it was just such an amazingly run production and on schedule. And our production designer, Wynn Thomas, did the most spectacular job of creating those sets. I mean, you guys shot NASA in a formal mental hospital in Atlanta, <laughs> Georgia. And we would all go in there. And you wouldn't believe these different floors of this place were all created as these gorgeous sets, the Space Task Force room, everything. And all we would say when we'd be going up and down in the elevators is, you know, there's these really creepy tunnels where they used to take their mental patients so they wouldn't go outside. Do you want to go down there? No, there's scratches on the wall. But I'm just saying that everybody used all their imagination and everything at their disposal. Um, Our costume designer, our cinematographer, who's one of 3% of women cinematographers in the business, Mandy Walker. Um, You know... Everybody just cared so much about this film. So from our perspective as a studio, uh, we just really sat there and were overjoyed to be working with this amazing group of people. And it's been that way on this film. It's been a gift every day of it. So, so Kevin, you've done, obviously you've done big budget movies, you know, smaller budget movies. How was it for you going kind of old school? It was shot on film, beautiful sets, no green screen. How for you was it able to get into the role? being on that kind of set and well we, we 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 had to go to work you know i mean so i i never even understood how the role was going to impact the movie because we were working so hard on it you know ever, ever been in wood shop where you're working working you don't even get to blow the dust <laughs> off so all of a sudden it becomes a movie so how the part has evolved i'm seems to be okay um but you know um Big budget, small budget, there's one thing that's true. They're all hard. And, and, and if you ask a director what he wants sometimes, you know, the, you know, the answer you, know, you might think comes back, I, I need more money, I need, I, I need more money. The reality is um, what a director really wants is more time. You want more time. And um, so this movie was not, uh, you know, we... We only had so much, and, and you're right. People, you know, getting to make, making movies is like a big club of your friends, and we all decide what we're going to work on. And uh, we come together for 43 days or however many days, and in two weeks from later, every one of the people that you were seeing at breakfast, lunch, and dinner are somewhere else in the world making another movie. We're all we're gypsies, so... Um, I don't even know what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do. You just make it up when you just don't care. <laughs> i got to ask a question. Is this this little room that I see on television all the time that people are here in the Santa Barbara area? There's a channel when you see UCSB and yeah. a lot of yeah. stuff. Is this the room? Yes. Oh, yeah, man, we made it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, it's uh, you know, uh, <laughs> now you know who's watching your channel, channel though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. Uh, so Ted, let's go. Uh, so uh, shooting on film. Yeah. You know, film is, uh, if I'm mistaken, is almost dead. But you, you know, it's, it's still not dead. It's alive. very much alive. Um, 
I don't know. I, 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 do, I do a lot of commercial work. Uh, I've done hundreds of commercials, and I always shoot the standard Alexa or you know, whatever it's going to be, flavor of the month. Um, I shot St. Vincent on film. Uh, I'm a big film proponent. I think, I think we're losing something by not shooting things on film. I don't care what anyone tells you, and they've told you, there's nothing like film. That's just my opinion. Um, it just creates a depth and a, and, a, and a feeling. To me, it's a feeling you just can't duplicate, no matter how hard you try. So, and it's a period piece. I, don't know, I can't imagine shooting digital on a period piece. Anyway. Uh, so, uh, so Elizabeth, uh, what about the research process? I mean, we, we had a lot of science in this movie, a lot mm-hmm. of math. What was the process for that and getting all the actors and cast on board with very complicated math? Well, I, I don't know. That's kind of a question for you, too, um, because you had to direct those actors doing all the things that they did. But just as far as the research and the veracity of the movie, we had an amazing partner in NASA, amazing partner in IBM, still do, both of them. Uh, and I think you know, their expertise and basically vetting all the materials were you know, invaluable to us, and we wanted to make sure that everything was as true as possible. Um, but I, maybe you want to talk about... Like, uh, we just did, you know, we had a specialist for everything. And, you name yeah. it, we had a specialist. Taraji doing the... Yeah. Uh, and everyone dug into the math. Taraji learned that math. That little girl at the beginning of the movie did that math in one take. I mean, she's a genius. These, these, these actors just did the work, and our, our NASA specialist, our NASA historian, Dr. Bill Barry, and Bert Ulrich read every draft of the script and picked the part and send me nine pages of notes uh, all the time. <laughs> and you just keep digging in. You, I mean, every, every ounce of that math is accurate. Uh, that, that scene where Jim Parsons describes the, the orbits, um, the difference between parabolic and elliptical orbit, uh, took a month to write, because I had to understand it, mm-hmm. uh, and I had to kind of learn it, and that's, you know, who wants to do that? Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, with the help of NASA, and when NASA finally read that script, the final, final scene said that is the best depiction of what we did and what we do and the problem we had we've ever seen mm-hmm. on film. So, I mean, we just did the work. So, Kevin, you didn't volunteer to write on the board for Taraji? Uh, <laughs> no, listen, you know, when you, when you have to do something you don't know anything about, you just do a lot of chin boogies. <laughs> <laughs> Doing it right that's now. A, that's a, did you just raise your IQ by not saying anything? <laughs> just remember that a few chin boogies, and you can be you can be right there. I wish I was one of those people, but you know, um, I think you know we understand the movie, the big things, right? John Glenn going, the, the women, the segregation, the, the racism, the men being intimidated, all kinds of things. But I think the charm of the movie is is. The, the, the smaller stuff and it is this little girl if you could just stop yourself for a moment and you realize that girl was touched by God she could go to college when she was 8 years old and she could just blow a room like this away so that, that young lady very early was touched and she was on her journey in her life and, and uh, thank God she was able to be pushed forward because in this giant story about John Glenn and we can all be a little bit upset why don't we know this story 
Why did we not know this story? Well, guess what? There's a lot of history that we don't know, and it's hard to turn back the pages. And these women, it was interesting that people were even called computers to begin with. We think of our silver things now, but no human beings were referred to that. We are offended that, that the, 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 these women that were doing this math were segregated. But we can understand maybe why we haven't seen that story, because it falls into that giant barrel of things untold. But the thing that I think has struck, struck me the most was that when we know the story of John Glenn and then don't know the story of Katherine Johnson, that's a problem. That's a problem because as this movie is, the architecture of this movie comes down to John Glenn at one point is not going to go. He's not going to go. And this, this, everything that's been built to this moment, he's not moving until this one little skinny girl that we saw as eight-year-old gets her pencil, gets her eraser, and she does the math. And so to know, to know John Glenn's story and not know Katherine Johnson, I think that's the thing that maybe bothers me the most. That she, it'd be like, and I've said this before, it would be like keeping, not saying the punchline of a joke. You tell the story and you don't say the punchline. You tell the story of John Glenn and you don't get to that moment where, and he wouldn't go, really? He wouldn't go? Well, what did he do? And it came down to this one little girl. And I think Ted did an amazing job at that moment, too, calling her the smart girl. Which girl? Not the black girl, not the pretty girl, not the, the smart girl. And I love that. I can answer your stuff. <laughs> It's important to note that, um, just as a, as a side, uh, an aside, but that line John Glenn says, get the girl to run the numbers, if she says they're good, I'm good to go, is a direct quote. So, so uh, let's go back to the beginning, because we always teach our screenwriting students about openings, uh, defining your characters, making sure that everybody knows where they are. Uh, you're a great opening, really. You have Catherine, whose head's in the clouds, you know, with the eight-year-old. We've got uh, Octavia Spencer under the car hood. And Janelle, who had the greatest line, you know, I, I love chasing a white chair. Was that whole line. Mm-hmm. How did you, uh, so how, was, how important was the opening for you? How did you land on that? Did it take you a while to find the character voices? Uh, it didn't take a while to find their voices because I, I, the research tells you who they were. And after spending hours with Katherine Johnson, I knew exactly who Katherine Johnson was. She was very, she's very regal and very quiet and, and just a brilliant woman. And we knew Mary Jackson was the fighter. She petitioned the court. She got in. All those stories are true. Uh, I, I, just, I just wanted one scene right away because there's so much to cover. I mean, you're dealing with three individual storylines, the NASA storyline. There's just so much to cover. You've got to be as super, for you, those of you who are writing, you've got to be as, as sufficient as you can be when you have that kind of issue. And so you've got to get it out as quickly as possible, who they are, all three together, and what they're going through, and what, what year it is, and what time it is, and, and what's the culture of, of civil That scene tries to do everything. I, I think it works on that level, because it... And then it binds them together, right? The moment the cop goes, wait a minute, you work for NASA? He changes, because that's how important the space race was to everyone in the country. And most of you are too young to... Uh, I wasn't there either, but... Uh, <laughs> But you get it, right? you got to get uh, all this oh, information. Oh, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> There's Tang and Microwave. <laughs> anyway, just try to get as much told in one scene as possible. And that's how, that, that's how I started thinking about it, and that's how it was born. 
Now, uh, Janelle was amazing as Mary Jackson, Elizabeth. So what, what made you, what, what did you see her in casting? And I, I was especially moved by the courtroom scene, first her performance in that. But what did you see in her that you said, this, she's the only actress that can play this part? Well, I'd actually met Janelle about a year before. Uh, and what struck me about her was she, for me, was a supernova. I mean, she was just so beautiful inside and out, and her spirit just projected so far. So Taraji was the first in because Ted had, had um, you know, I've been speaking with her about working, you know, them working together, and that was immediately said, well, this is what I want to do. So that was easy. And then Octavia obviously was already knew about the project and was interested. So that left the youngest one and so many actresses that wanted to be considered for the part. And I think you saw quite a few and yeah, gave it some time. Yeah. yeah. And then it just came down to she was just this force of nature, and we really believed in her and felt like she was going to bring a spirit to that character that she did. You know, there, there's something, there's, some, there's also something about that scene we're talking about. So we're talking about Janelle doing the scene and being really great in the scene. But there's a little thing that happens in movies that I think that, that are subconscious, and if you love this movie or you begin to think about this movie, it's, it's something that happens in that scene that I'm drawn to. And maybe you'll be drawn to it, too. She's written beautifully there. She stands up for herself. She makes an incredibly compelling argument. She's smart about it. She goes at it. But what was so great for me was that this man that absorbed it, he changed his mind. And we're so used to thinking that people don't hear us. They're not going to hear this powerful argument that when it's so compelling. You know, we're not wanting him to ignore. And what I loved was that man shifted his own thinking at that moment based on the power of her argument. And so while I love Janelle in that scene, the little thing that you did there, have a, one man change his... We, we have to still believe that the power of a, a good argument can change the day. And I think that that's one of those little touches why people are enjoying your movie, Ted. Uh, Kevin, one of the things... I mean, you, most of your scenes were Catherine and Jim Parsons. Yeah. Uh, and I found your opening scene particularly interesting. You know, we, we were supposed to be afraid of you. Don't walk. Don't talk to him. And you only really just cared about can she do it. Right. You didn't care. But what was the dynamic working with the three of you? Because there was an interesting triangle between you, Jim, and Taraji. Yeah. Well, first off, Jim Parsons, who is having this remarkable television career, uh, it says a lot about him to come into this movie and play a guy on the wrong side of history, play the, what we consider the jerk. And I'd like to just say, first of all, you know, you might have a tendency to look at him as he's a racist in this movie. He is not. And I thought that was beautiful the way Jim really played him. Maybe you didn't catch it, but if you really think about how he played him, he didn't play it as a racist. He played it as a man. He played it as an insecure man. He played it as a man who was jealous. And wasn't that she was black. It wasn't that she was... It could have been that she was a woman. But, you know, we confuse things. And I think that Jim came in and did a, had a thankless role and did a marvelous mm-hmm. job. Uh, so for those of you like Jim Parsons, you know, good for him. What was it like for me? I'll tell you the truth. I came at the end of the movie. Um, you want to know the truth? <laughs> <laughs> I came at the end of the movie... Um, and so I ended the movie, so every scene was basically me the last three weeks. And um, 
I had a, a thing called a kidney stone, and I, I never didn't know what that was, but it put me in the emergency ward in the hospital, and I realized with our 10 cents to make the movie, I had to get back on the set. And so um, I had morphine, and, um, and I had an IV drip the entire week, that I, the entire two weeks uh, that I was uh, working on that. So... Who was in the movie? Jim Parsons? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think, I think Ted would just guide me over to my mark like this. He goes, this is you. And I go, this is me? He goes, yeah. And he goes, and you're going to go over there. And I go, have we done this before? And he goes, yeah. You've done it a lot, Kevin. So I'm doing okay? Yeah. So it was an amazing experience to have a director support you that way and, and know what I was kind of going through. And... Um, you know, I, I, I do have a recollection of who they were and how it was. Um, but, uh, you know, movies are funny things. You know, the, 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 you know that old adage that the show must go on? That's what happens with movies. You just got to do it. And had great partners. Great partners. Well, I got to say, you know, for me, Kevin's role and, and Kevin, your performance in the film um, is just to me so staggeringly subtle and wonderful. And like every moment... What makes the scene for me when Taraji comes in after running and she blows up at Kevin, what makes that scene for me is his face. Taraji is the obvious thing, but the what you did, just learning what she said for the first time, to me is the definition of acting. And it also leads to the great sequence where you knock down the, the, the segregation right. sign, but all nonverbal, so that was kind of... Yeah, that's one of the. That, that's something that I've been able to do in movies. That that when you sit in the dark, we kind of, you know, we, you know, I mean, who wouldn't have wanted to ride with the buffalo? Really, who wouldn't have wanted to go west? Who wouldn't have wanted to be in the bathtub with Susan Sarandon? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so the so. Where I'm, where I'm going is, what's so great about the movies once in a while is the things that we get to do. And I, there's a moment where I understand so completely that you're me. You're with me. And who of us doesn't want to tear a sign like that down? At that moment in this film, you all wanted to tear it down. You were glad it was coming down. And so you became me and I became you because I knew exactly where we were at. And so I don't know, you know, I hope I'm that brave in my life. I hope, I hope I'm that smart. And in movies, we get to play people that are smarter than us, that are braver than us. But the cool thing in the movie was I also got to take the tape off. You know, where's the fist fight in this movie? It's not. It's taking that tape off. And I took it off once for me, and I took it off once for you. And it's the same way with tearing that sign down. I think in our lives, we all want to take that sign down. So, so Elizabeth, let's talk a little about Octavia Spencer casting her. Uh, was a was there anybody else even in mind, or did you like this is her? That's it. We're no. not doing anybody else for that part. That was it. It's Octavia Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is no other. 
Yeah. No, that was pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, the scene, the scene that struck me the most was, because uh, we talked about subtlety and nonverbal, mm. was the scene in the bathroom with Kirsten Dunst, um. where it was, you know, it was just like, I have nothing against you, you know, your people's like, I know you believe that. Yeah. It was such, because it was just subtle racism, it wasn't the overt, and it was just ingrained. How did that, you know, how did you develop that scene with her? What was... I was just, you know, we, re- we watched, I don't know, everyone here should watch The Eyes on the Prize, if you haven't. All you uh, younger folks. Eyes on the Prize is a civil rights documentary which will change your life. Um, you will see the way we treated black people and you will be sick. You know? And so I was struggling. I watched it probably a dozen times. And I, was struggling with, I was struggling with what race, what is racism, what does it mean today? Because we don't have the fire hoses and we don't have the sit-ins and, and, and we don't have the cross-burnings well, maybe somewhere, but we don't have them, you know, like we did then. So what do we have now? We have the looks and the unconscious bias, and we have the not promoting people, and we have the not letting people advance. We have all that other kind of racism. So I want to, I want to come up with a scene that defined what it is to be a racist when you don't even know you are. And that's what unconscious, that's what it is for, for you know. And, and, and Kirsten's, Kirsten had a very difficult time playing that role because Kirsten is so opposite that. And Octavia and her are very close. It was just very, Kirsten was sick on the first day because it was so sickening for her to play that role. And I said to myself, that's what racism... Racism is, is you don't even know you are and yet you do something to thwart someone all the time and you don't even know it. And so that's what that line is. I know... I know you probably believe that. Because she probably believes that. Because if she woke up, if, so, if, you, if you know you're awful, how do you live? And that's how, that's how the scene came to me. You know, there's, 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 there's some more subtleties that you've done. I think you directed a really beautiful movie. And it's hard to do it. And I don't think good stories make good movies. I think great scripts make good movies. And there's a, a thing you did with Octavia... That uh, again, it's nothing about getting John Glenn to the moon, and nothing about it. It actually takes one of our most sacred institutions, which is the library. We we hold them in great regard, but when she steals that book for her children, <laughs> we are happy. We are we are we're proud of her as a mother that she would. You know, if that library can't be for all of us, then by God, it's going to be for my. I love. That humanity that that comes out of that that scene that's a very important thing in the in the way to think that she becomes a mama right then and my kids are going to know this book and and this thing that we hold sacred we were glad that that she went around that at least I was mm-hmm. when I watched it and her rationale about paying taxes so you can't steal something that you already paid for is pretty good too <laughs> one of my favorite Octavia moments is actually. I think one of the most subtle in the film, and it's when she's just received from, you know, her supervisor that she's been made a supervisor, and she's about, it's when Glenn is in orbit, she's about to turn off the light in the room where they all work, and she looks up at the sign that says colored computers, and she just goes like that, and then she turns the light off. And for me, it was like her saying, we've moved beyond. 
and, and that is just like a look. And so I think this film has so many of those moments. And there's one of yours, and I know it's not one of your favorites, but it's Marissa's and mine. It's when um, you turn around and look at Catherine when Glenn's been recovered, and you just look at her with this look on your face, like, and it's this half smile, and she looks at you, and it's just like this partnership. And, and that's what, those are the things that I hold in my heart, you know, and cherish about. You know, those colored, uh, colored computer signs, in the novel, you'll, if you read the novel, uh, Dorothy Vaughn went into work to the colored computer room every week, and every week she took that sign down. <laughs> and she put it in her, in her uh, pocketbook, and she brought it home. The next week, that sign would be back up there. So not too long ago, her granddaughter found the sign in the attic. <laughs> and she's donated to the, to the African-American to Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. Oh. Um, it was interesting. You have it, also another thing, music, which I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Pharrell, Hans Zimmer, and Benjamin Walfish. Now, I didn't initially think those three would ever make music together. <laughs> what, or what, what, what brought them, you think, together, and what was, was something you wanted, why you wanted those three? Well, Pharrell uh, was actually someone who was raised in Virginia, in that area. And um, he was at an event uh, some years ago. And his mother reminded him, as he told her, that he was going to be one of the producers on the film and he was going to create songs for the movie and co-write the score. She said, you met Katherine Johnson. She came to that event that you were at. And, um, and so he had heard about the project, and he basically said, how can I be part of this? I need to be a part of this. And we welcomed him, and he's been an amazing partner. And the songs that he had been working on prior to even knowing about this project were because he was inspired by the 60s period. So even though they were contemporary songs, they were always with the flavor of the 60s. But then he did write Running, and I see a victory for the movie, actually. Those are two original songs for the movie. But just as far as his input and his energy and everything that he brought to the project, I think it was pretty extraordinary and is still. I mean, he's like our elf. Um, you know, and and just full of passion and, and feeling for yeah. the subject and everything about it. He, he brought Hans Zimmer along. Yeah. yeah and Ben. Um, one scene that really struck me was with the Utrecht and Jim Parsons, the scene where you let her into the Pentagon. Uh, you know, she fought to get into the Pentagon room. And again, talking about subtlety, which I like about Ted Scripps so much, you didn't say much, you just gave her the chalk. How did that, how did that, how did you work with that scene with that? Because again, nonverbal, just kind of letting everybody watch her. Well, it's a, th- that moment of passing the chalk is, is, is what we all want, which is to be empowered. And that was, uh, she was in the room because she was smart. She was in the room because she couldn't be denied anymore. And even I wondered, why can't she be in the room? And um, I think we were able to find a sense of humor in that moment. And movies never suffer from a sense of humor, never. But I think when you get in there, um, she's like, she's not a gunfighter, but you know, in a cowboy movie, you really want to see some, at the end, you, you need to see, he's fast, he's really fast. <laughs> well, at some point, we got to see how fast, right? We know this little girl's smart, and this is her moment. Jim, and, and when that chalk passes, that torch, whatever you want to call it, 
we know we were going to watch something special up there. And um, that's our big action scene. <laughs> but we fall in love with it because we know she can do it. If she can just collect her nerves, go up to that chalkboard, be who she is with a bunch of doubters, and do her thing. And she got into her element, and we watched a true genius. And part of our movie was trying to find the genius among the geniuses. Yeah, it says, one thing that struck me about the scene, Jim Parsons' expression during the chalk scene, I saw a hint of, like, he's finally beginning to look at her a little differently. And I was so grateful at the end you didn't have, like, I'm so sorry I did, you know, I was like that. It was very subtle. She, you know, he, gave, she gave, he brought her coffee. The desks were closer. But not, you know, the overt thing. How did you, did you always land on it? Did you always want to be, you know, not go too far, but to show that he did progress? Uh, it's just my philosophy on life. I, I don't think people change very much. <laughs> so, I mean, my dad didn't change. I mean, you look, you, you, what, maybe you gain 10 pounds in your life and you lose 10, I don't know. But I, I think change is very little and very and, and subtle and, and over time. Um, that's just my philosophy. So I didn't want this big, corny kind of Hollywood, oh, Jim Parsons becomes her, her lover or whatever he becomes. <laughs> you know, he is who he is. He is a man petrified of a woman being better than him. Mm. And, and she's a black woman and all the things that brings up for him. And so he will always look at her like, ah, she's better than me. I mean, that will always live inside of him. That will take years of therapy for him, which... <laughs> You know, think, he's got to work that out in the future. You know, I think we can be thrilled looking at the movie, and sometimes when we watch a movie in the dark, we can go, can't believe people behave like that. Can't believe we've separated people like that. We can, we can kind of distance ourselves from that, or we can really look at it and go, yeah, that's, that, that's the way we are. It's what we're capable of. And when the lights go on, one of the things that we can do is turn around and look at where we're at. Where, where are we at in, in America and, you know, without, you know, changing the course of this evening, you know, one of the questions we just can ask ourselves is how many good ideas have not gotten to the top in America because we've been too afraid to let culture uh, expose itself and women. And, and um, so, the, the, you know, the movie allows us to look back, but the, as soon as the lights go on, we can actually ask ourselves where we're at. Elizabeth, one thing that struck me too was uh, the balance of the personal life versus the professional. Because there's a tendency in Hollywood, and I'm sorry to say, especially for women's movies, to really focus on the personal life, have it struggle. I like the fact that she had a normal life. She raised her kids. It didn't go in that direction. Was that important for you, just kind of showing this is what real life is? Because I think tendency movies go a little melodramatic or try to... Yeah, I mean, I think it was a a balancing act during the post-production part of the movie to, you know, Ted, you really calibrated, I think, the personal lives. And we just wanted to show that they were human beings and that they had, you know, other responsibilities besides going to work and trying to hold down, you know, a semblance of a family life. And, you know, the fact that that, uh, Catherine was a widow and was grieving. And, you know, there was more of that in the film that was shot. But at the end of the day, I think... um, we all felt really, really proud when Catherine saw the movie with two of her three surviving daughters, and they were they were very emotional about it. But they felt so gratified that Ted had portrayed their family life the way that it was, and they 
were literally looking at their room and remembering it way back all those years later um, as if they had been there just that day. And they were very grateful to us for being so respectful to their stepfather. And, you know, their mom, Catherine, is still, they're still married, Jim and Catherine. And so that was really, I think some, one of the things we were really the most proud of is that we gave justice to their true lives. We have two thumbs up from Catherine. Yeah, we do. That's, 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 that was a scary moment waiting for that. <laughs> so uh, we have time for a couple of questions. Let the audience have some you know, fun asking questions. Please raise your hand. We will get up. My inter- uh, students will get you mics. Uh, well, we have one right there, and then we'll go to you next. Hi, my name is Jalia. Uh, my question is, was it hard for you with casting Janelle because she is a musical um, superstar? that um, audiences would see, like, the artist instead of the actual character? Uh, I mean, there's always that, there's always that thought. Um, but she kind of disappeared. We, the minute we put her in the makeup and the wardrobe and the hair, she kind of disappeared. So to me, I, I, when I saw her the first day, I was like, this is going to work. And she's such a powerhouse I, I, at that point. And her acting was, her audition was... Amazing. I said, it doesn't really matter. People are going to see a great actor. Thank you. There's a question right there. How did you choose Mandy Walker for your DP? And do you think it made a difference that you had three really strong women actors and then a strong woman DP? Uh... You've seen a movie called Tracks? Yeah, I mean, Mandy Walker's brilliant. And if you watch Tracks and you watch Australia, uh, the way she photographs women is just second to none. Um, she has her light meter right here and then her red lipstick right next to it. <laughs> and I think it makes a huge difference, um, the voices and the voices in front of the camera and the voices behind the camera, to me. Inclusion is not a, um, it's not a buzzword. It's a responsibility. You know, 35% of our crew is female, which the average is 20. Uh, and we just made a, a conscientious effort to include what America looks like behind this camera and in front of the camera. And I think it's important to... I think that's why the movie is working. It's because of all the different voices in it. She's taking the Elizabeth, I just had a question for you. I was wondering um, what right. it was like, what it's like coming back here as a fellow gaucho and kind of like what your process has been and um, your experience in career and things in Hollywood. Well, I'm proud to say that I was an English major here. And um, <laughs> if anyone asked me what the most valuable thing is, the tool that I have uh, that has led me along my career path, it would be to be able to read and analyze stories, and to be able to write, and um, that I learned here. And so I just hold on to that as strongly as I can, because I think that every film is about a good story, and and the character's stories within it. And so uh, coming back to this school and giving back to this school um, is one of the greatest joys of my life. And I feel like I carry a part of it with me everywhere in the world that I go and that I'm blessed to be here. Again, I live in Santa Barbara. I commute to L.A. um, because I love it here, and I think it's a great place to raise your family and to experience the world. 
but it it also is a place of of peace and shelter and um, so it gives me a center to come back to um, and you know the thing about it is is that i didn 't know that my job existed when I went to school here uh, i didn 't know there was such thing as a studio executive, um, but I found my path. Uh, I worked hard, and people gave me chances, and, and I'll be grateful to all those people, but, you know, it's just, you carry the community with you wherever you go. Uh, Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Um, I don't really have a question. I just want to second um, the subtlety um, that was depicted in this film. I thought it was... Uh, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I, you know, I'm. I would consider myself a political activist, and you know, um, I know a lot about the '60s and '50s in this time era. And you know, so often in films, they always depict the violence, the violence, you know, and just like you know, th- this was a revolution. I, you know, like just showing people how small acts can really turn the tide of time, and like, yeah, like. Um, I could be pessimistic sometimes, you know, too, and, like, cynical about the world, but it's really, like, the small actions that we do within our institutions that could, like, you know, uh, that that changes things. And I know when I was younger and I saw movies and how much they impacted me and why why I'm here, why I'm here now, um, this movie is going to impact people like me, everybody. Okay. You know, you're talking about something that makes me think about film a lot. And one of the things I miss in film so much is I miss a curtain. Where did the curtains go? Um, and the reason why was because when I was little and I'd watch and the curtain would open, as it was going like that, I knew something great could happen. I just knew something great could happen. And all too often in movies, it doesn't. But something can and the thing that you're talking about and why we keep going to movies and we sit in the dark, Bertolucci said it, it's one of the last places where 500 people can sit in the dark and dream the same dream. We know something can happen. And when movies, and there's all kinds of movies, our movie is not more important than Deadpool. It's just our movie. They can be a lot of things. Movies can be romantic love stories. They can be westerns. They can be a lot. And they can be about our history. And they can be about our condition. And when movies are working at their best, no matter what genre we're talking about, when they're working at their very best, it gets you discombobulated because you see and you hear things that you'll never, ever forget. And sometimes it can be as simple as a look or a word. And that's when movies are magic, and that's why we keep at it. You know, I, two, two defining moments for me in the process of this film. Uh, two days ago, I got a Facebook text, Facebook message from a college student who said she went to her first semester. She was, I went to my first semester. Of, I think she's a sophomore or a junior. First semester. She goes, I, I just felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. And I've been fighting an uphill battle. I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't have any dreams. She said, I saw your movie. Since you dro- so she said, I dropped out. She saw the movie, and she just re-enrolled. And she went to her guidance counselor and said, I I don't know what I want to do, but I know I want to keep going. Hmm. So there's that. And then I was in a screening in, in, uh, where was it? In downtown, by LAX, Los Angeles. And a a black woman about 60 
was crying. I was at the spinning. She was crying profusely. And she hugged me. I didn't know what to do, so I hugged her. <laughs> and she said, you have given me, this movie has given me the strength to continue. And so this is why, I mean, the other day in L.A., we screened this film for 10,000 L.A. USD students for free. 10,000 kids, all ages, and they left there on fire. And that's what this movie's about. We always end our our show with the same question. Uh, Can you tell us about a movie theater experience you had as a child, a movie that maybe inspired you, you went with your your father, your parents, when you were young? We'll start with you, Ted. Oh, God. I really loved this, this kung fu theater when I was a kid. So I, 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 just, I just remember that, I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the Flying Guillotine, but no one's ever seen that movie. Yeah? yeah. Come on. The original. I was just fascinated that this, that this samurai type guy could throw this guillotine, right, and pull someone's head off. And so I don't have a better story than that, but I just love it. God. <laughs> How do I talk I that? Oh my down. god! <laughs> oh, for me, it was probably The Graduate. Um, it was uh, this shocking movie. I couldn't believe it. I still love it. The music, everything about it. Mike Nichols' brilliance and the just everything. Dustin Hoffman. It's even a joke in a movie we're making right now. Elaine, Elaine. Um, so <laughs> anyway, that was probably like the defining uh, film as far as kind of a coming of age. Us, you know, humanity. Film marked me when I was seven years old. I was uh, living up in Upper Ojai, Santa Paul. A little boy had a, a birthday party, and um, and uh, it was going to take him to the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood, which seemed like another continent. <laughs> and so the eight of us went to the Cinerama Dome. I was seven years old. I didn't know what we were going to see, and it was How the West Was Won. And an overture played before it started, and I sat on the seat. My, my feet couldn't hit the ground. This is how I, you know, I was that little. And uh, I, it was a four-hour movie, and I never left my seat. And the other kids were dinking around. They went in intermission to get their Cokes, and music played a thing, and it never, it never meant. And the very first image I saw was I heard Spencer Tracy's voice about our country, that this was a country before there were roads and maps, there was these people, and I saw this man in a birch bark canoe, Jimmy Stewart, in skins, going across a lake, and the lake didn't have a ripple in it, and he pulled up onto this beach, and there were these very exotic people. They were Native American Indians, and they were dressed beautifully, and I just watched that, and I thought, that's who I am, and to the chagrin of my Mother and father, I built three canoes in my backyard. <laughs> um, I went down all the rivers that Lewis and Clark went down, and um, that movie just marked me. You know, I know it's a little corny in places where they sing and dance, but we're, I'm haunted by the images and thrilled by them at the same time, and that was an image that marked me. That's why my movies are long. <laughs> Well, I mean, Hidden Figures is a really special film, which I really appreciate it. It pulled no punches. 
It didn't, you know, it showed the way it was, but it also showed a lot more optimism and possibility. You know, people forget in the 60s, the space race started the modern computer. These are the women, you know, Dorothy is the first really computer programmer that leads to, you know, us watching movies on iPads. Uh, but no, it was so special. And, uh, and sadly, while we had a great scientific achievement, we had horrible inequality. I'm kind of hoping movies like this will now inspire us to go into more science and hopefully inspire us to solve the inequality issue that sadly we did not solve in the 60s. So I want to thank you all for coming, sharing this with us. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.